0: I don't know about you, but there are certain objects that just give me the creeps. Years ago, I bought a poster of a vintage advertisement for Vave, an Italian liqueur, and it was hanging in my kitchen when a friend pointed out that the figure wearing a black costume with a pointy hat and mask looked just like the hooded prisoner in the famous picture from Abu Ghraib. If you don't know the photo, which went viral but somehow escaped my consciousness. Look up Abu Ghraib in Wikipedia. You'll find the image of a man balancing precariously in a box, his arms outstretched, wearing a jagged black robe and a black hood covering his entire face. His hands are connected to wires bearing electrical current. It looks like a Halloween costume gone terribly wrong. Suddenly, This poster I'd had for years no longer showed a harmless clown, but a victim of torture. I couldn't look at it without cringing, so I took it down. I'm Debbie Galland, and this is Stuff.Life, a podcast about our relationship with things. In today's episode, I talk about what a friend of mine calls DPS, or dead people's stuff, Usually, we think of DPS in a fond way. Things that, because they remind us of a person we love, we're reluctant to throw out. A quilt, a jewelry box, a favorite pipe. But what if, instead, the dead person's stuff contains an object that, in and of itself, is a symbol of malevolence?
1: and um, he was a mean, old, crusty man. I never liked him as a kid. This is your grandpa? My grandfather, my father's father. Anyway, so uh, after the funeral, we were back at their house and uh, starting to look at things and see what... 1973,
0: Spruce Pines in the Northwest Mountains
1: of North Carolina. We found this big cedar trunk in an unused bedroom and we started going through it. And my mother said, I remember that your grandmother put a lot of quilts in a trunk like this. So let's see if there's some quilts in here. So we go digging and all of a sudden we see this white satin thing. And so we started pulling and pulling and it started developing into this kind of a very recognizable costume and my mother went oh my god oh my god i never wanted my children to know about this part of your father's family and i said
0: This is Tom Green who sells baked goods at a farmer's market in Milan, part of New York's Hudson Valley. Here comes the kicker.
1: And so my aunt is there and she says, Oh, no, no, no. Um, The Klan here in Western North Carolina was not against the blacks. And I just kind of in the back of my head said, Yeah, because there's not that many black people in the mountains of North Carolina. There are some, but there are not that many. It was mostly the Catholics and the Jews that they were worried about. And I just went, Oh, my God. that is okay. <laughs> That's absolutely okay, yes. To update this story, about uh, four months ago I get an email from my younger sister and it is a picture of my father and his brother when they were like seven and nine years old at a Klan rally in Asheville with my grandfather standing there with his robes on, and he has his hood back over his head, and my father is sitting on his knee.
0: Like a proud moment. like. Oh,
1: yes. Oh, very posed. I mean, you know, just... And my sister said, I found this in our mother's drawer, and when my mother found out that we had found the picture and it had been emailed to everybody that we possibly so we could email it to her. She said, oh, I just never wanted that picture to see the light of day. And I said, well, why didn't you destroy it? Yeah. Well, it's still part of our heritage.
2: Stand up
3: and be counted. Show the world that you're a man. Stand up and be counted. Go with the cute box plan. We are a sacred brotherhood who love our country too. We always can be counted on when there's a job to do. We serve our homeland day and night to keep it always free. And proudly wear our robes of white protecting liberty. Stand up and be
0: counted, show the world... Here's the thing. When I listen to Tom tell this story, I expect him to be shocked. That's the narrative I want to impose. Oh my God, we opened the chest and out came this Ku Klux Klan robe. But instead... Tom is resolutely so close to matter of
1: fact. In my family. Yeah, were you
0: horrified? I mean, would you
1: remember at the time or no, I wasn't horrified. I just kind of went, Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's it. And you know, it was you know, it was And let's be clear, Tom
0: Green, Baker, former New York City chef, and before that an actor, is not any kind of Klan sympathizer. I did some research and as it turns out, joining the Klan in North Carolina in the nineteen twenties or thirties would not have been at all out of the ordinary. David Cunningham, a sociologist who has studied the Klan in North Carolina, describes it during that period.
2: Um, The Klan, beginning in the late teens and kind of moving into the 30s, was in effect a mainstream force. It was obviously white supremacist. It was strongly uh, anti-communist, also anti-Catholic, anti-Semitic. But it was... Also, an organization that had an enormous following, and not just in the South. So in the 20s, the Klan has a, a very strong national following that reaches into the millions. Um, so a place like North Carolina, the Klan probably had somewhere in the order of 100,000 members.
0: But that and the tor- reason for this membership. surge in Klan membership, and this is the part I find fascinating, is a single man. Here's Allison Kinney, author of a new book from Bloomsbury called Hood, in which she took a deep dive into the role of hoods throughout history. And then it was done kind of as a, as, and, and it sounds
4: horrible to say this, but it was kind of a clubhouse activity. I mean, by the clubhouse activity, it's like pals palling around? It's almost like a... Kind
3: of like, kind of like the Masons or the Elk Club. Mm-hmm. Um, their Fraternities were very popular for people to join, and so there was a man named William J. Simmons who decided to start up a new fraternity that was going to be called Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. And so this was the second wave. He, um, he had a factory, he had publicists, and he had a massive recruiting campaign that brought in 100,000 new members in just about a year and a half. And so this is when the second wave begins. And so because he had a factory, he was able to take this idea of what the Klan should look like that had come kind of from from the the novel and the play called The Clansmen that later became the film The Birth of a Nation. And in The Birth of a Nation, they're not all wearing the white hoods. They're they're wearing a different kind of uniform. But Simmons comes along, opens his factory, and he takes one of the costumes they're wearing in the film and starts mass producing it. And so because of Hollywood and um, shopping catalogs, because he had a catalog and mass production, we get this mass-produced idea of a clan, and that's where the iconic look comes from.
0: Fascinating. So here's Hollywood in 1915, not just reflecting but creating cultural iconography. Here's capitalism fanning the flames of hatred. And then think about the sheer numbers, which suggest this. There are thousands upon thousands of clan robes and attics and closets in this country just waiting to be found, which leads me to part two of this story. Okay, so this is my friend Tabby. Okay, say
4: hello. This is
0: my brother Oren. Orrin or Warren? Or Oh, hi, Oren. And, um, hi, hey, I'm actually recording. That's my friend Tamima introducing me to her brother Oren. And the story they have to tell, well, it turns out to be much more unusual than Tom Green's story because, first of all, Tamima, like me, is Jewish. Some of the sound you're going to hear is garbled because we're at a party and Tamima has insisted on calling her brother Oren, who she says tells the story better than she does. I'm holding up a smartphone to her phone to record this story. So where the sound drops out, I'll come in and translate. So
2: the story is this. Back in 1954... The Supreme Court came down with um, Brown versus Board of Education stating that separation was inherently unequal. Shortly thereafter, my father moved to Richmond, Virginia, with myself and my mother, uh, to head up the Neighbors and Defamation League in Richmond.
0: Oren is saying that their father, Murray Friedman, was hired to head up the Anti Defamation League in Richmond, Virginia.
2: Among his activities was. Uh, trying to um, move uh, desegregation and integration uh, ahead in the uh, in the South, and among one of his projects was he hired a redneck <laughs> to, inf- to infiltrate the KKK in North Carolina.
0: Now, did you know um, about this at the time? You were a little kid when this was going on.
2: I, no, I was, a, I was in, in diapers.
0: Okay, but was this a family legend? Did you guys know about it? Well, well you knew, knew about it. I mean,
2: it. later. Years later, I knew about
0: it. Okay. All right. So, okay, so you All
4: know.
2: Right. So, anyhow, this guy was like a good old boy, and when he would give my father, like, uh, an account, he so he could be reimbursed. Instead of saying, you know, meals, he wrote, you know, on a slip of paper, he wanted to be reimbursed for his... Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but anyhow, this guy joined the KKK, got his robe, and um, was feeding the information back to my father, who was then passing on to the FBI. And the this guy was an FBI informer.
0: In other words, Friedman hires a Southern good old boy to infiltrate the KKK and inform him and the FBI about their activities in North Carolina. And his relationship goes on for a few years until a conservative journalist writes an article exposing him as a guy who's stirring up a bunch of trouble and trying to integrate Virginia's
4: schools. Within the next couple of years, enough stuff you know,
2: came down that the FBI said, you know what, well, you better get out of town.
4: Wow. So mm-hmm.
2: his relationship with this redneck ended, and when it was uh, ended, uh, this guy gave him his KKK rope.
0: Now, Murray Friedman passed away in 2005, But his kids didn't get to clean out his things until the summer when his second wife died. And though they'd heard the Klan story, they'd never seen the robe. They weren't even sure it still existed.
2: So I sort of had this understanding that somewhere in his belongings was the KKK robe. And uh, when we were cleaning out his apartment, there it was.
4: Just the other day? Just recently? In June. In June. In June. And what was that like?
0: I mean, where did you, first of all, where did you guys find it in the apartment or the house? In his
2: bedroom, in his closet, next to his, uh, his, uh, dress uniform from when he was in the Marine
0: Corps. Was it hanging on a mm-hmm. hanger? Yes.
2: With a dry yeah. cleaning bag over
0: it. Yes. It had a dry cleaning bag over it? Did you guys take a picture? No, it
2: was just, it, it was just hanging, uh, and, uh, I, I guess he had the, the hood was attached to it, but it was like, nothing changed.
0: Well, how did you guys feel when you saw it?
2: Well, I'm actually kind of proud of it because of what, you know, what he was doing. But like, It's not like he was participating, but rather infiltrating and trying to uh, change, the, you know, change the environment in the
0: South. Okay, so here's story number two about somebody finding a Klan robe in the attic, or okay, in a closet. And again, the reaction is in horror. Of course, you wouldn't expect the Freedmen to be ashamed. Their father wasn't a member of the Klan. He was fighting it. But remember, we're talking about an object that I would say is inherently as potent a symbol of hatred and viciousness as you can imagine, on a par with a Nazi swastika. Like I said, I had to take down the Vave poster because it reminded me of Abu Ghraib. A real Klan robe in person? I get shivers. I spent a lot of time talking to Alison Kinney about this very point.
4: Do you think the Klan robe is inherently creepy?
3: I think it is creepy. Um, However, it's based on a number of different kinds of outfits that that over a few centuries have not been creepy. So I think that calling it inherently creepy is kind of overlooking the ways in which costumes costumes change and remain the same, and what's important to look at is, is who wields power in wearing these costumes. Um,
0: but definitely, Kenny points out um, that the white cone with the mask and gown has been used for perfectly innocent purposes throughout the centuries. A confraternity in Italy wear outfits like these in the 15th century to provide chaplaincy services for people in prison. To complicate things even more, it's not always the perpetrators of violence who wear the hood. Sometimes, as with Abu Ghraib, it's the victims. But either way, a lot of the time, it's associated with menace.
3: Yes, and in my book, actually, there's this one terrible part in one of the chapters where I just make a list of places where hoods are used in torture for the past century so that victims cannot hold people who are torturing them accountable.
0: And yet, I'm not hearing this in my interviews. Later though, thinking about what Oren said, thinking about the pride he felt when he beheld this terrible object, I remembered other parts of Tom Green's story, namely that as despicable as he found his paternal grandfather, He couldn't stop praising his grandmother.
1: My grandmother, I miss to this day. You know, she's such a part of me in the sense of what I truly love and feel. I think the best parts of me are from her.
0: Then, when I asked for his grandparents' names,
1: he added this. My grandfather was Linton B. Green. And my grandmother was Beatrice Woody Green. Okay. And the she was originally a Woody, which is a big family of chair makers uh, and furniture makers in western North Carolina. There's still a Woody's chair shop uh, just outside of Spruce Vine. And the senior Woody made chairs for John Kennedy, mm-hmm. Carolyn, and John John. And then in a room that I had a small little um, coal fireplace. And when I slept on it as a kid, it had a straw mattress. It was a rope bed at that point. Straw mattress, a feather mattress, and I slept on sheets that my great-grandmother and grandmother grew the flax, made the thread, and wove the sheets from linen. Hmm. And that room was right next door to the kitchen. So I got to wake up in the morning smelling biscuits. And...
0: So, yes, Tom Green was there when his family learned his grandfather was a Klansman. But maybe the emotion we want to go to when we discuss what we find in the attic, when we think about our ancestors, is pride. So for Tom Green, it's his grandmother, Beatrice Woody Green, the long-suffering wife of a Klansman, and the daughter of a long and proud line of chairmakers who is the hero of his story, a woman so resourceful she could make the very bedding he slept on as a child. But that leaves the question of what you do with the clan robe.
2: My, my wife says, What are you going to do with that damn thing? I I'm going to put throw it in the trash, burn it, or if I can give it to somebody who might think it has some historic you know, meaning. I mean, my thought is to contact a uh, civil rights museum and see if they might be interested. Oh,
0: that's, a, that, that's a great okay. idea.
2: But on the other hand, you know what? You can buy brand new robes online on
0: right now. Oh my God! <laughs> I, yeah, but if you search for one, I put it to Allison go. Kinney, who, by the way, remembers a story about some museum that was inundated with Klan robes mailed to it from all around the country. So, Oren might have to come up with a plan B.
4: How do you think somebody should dispose of one of these if they, if the museum can't take them all, and you think that there are thousands in existence waiting to be found? Um is there a uh, is there a ritual that could purge the evil of this or some kind of use just to mm. make rags out of them or something or
3: Yeah, I mean It it depends on where you live and whether you have um, a a county or municipal fabric recycling facility. I would probably take it apart at the seams and cut it up and then recycle it and hope that it it got used to be recycled to make something nice. But if if someone wanted to burn it or otherwise destroy it and obliterate its meaning, I think that, that is also a good idea.
4: All right. So you could actually have your own little ceremony and just say, I don't play into this. I don't, this is, I'm not buying this. This is not a part of my family that I want to accept. I think that that would be a good idea.
0: Thanks to Tom Green, Oren and Tamima Friedman, David Cunningham, Alison Kinney, and to my husband, Warren Levinson, who first heard Tom Green's story about the Klan robe at the farmer's market and was willing to turn the car around so I could go back and record it. The music near the top of the episode comes from Blue Dot Sessions, and the traditional ballad, The Water is Wide, was sung by Jody and Emlyn O'Regan. Stand Up and Be Counted was written by Johnny Rebel and performed by the White Riders. Thanks to Noah Levinson for production help. I'm Debbie Gallant, and you've been listening to Stuff.Life, which you can hear on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And check out our website, Stuff.Life.